Hello and welcome back to Research Matters, a podcast produced by UNICEF's Office of Research Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, a communication specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and today I'm talking to two of UNICEF Innocenti's brilliant researchers from the Transfer Project, Amber Peterman and Tia Palermo, about their latest research linking poverty and gender-based violence. Building on the momentum of global campaigns like Me Too, this year's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence, which started on November 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and goes until the 10th of December, has a unique theme for 2018. Aren't the world, hashtag Hear Me Too. Hear Me Too brings to the forefront the voices of women and girls who have survived violence, who are defending women's rights every day, and raising their voices and awareness to orange the world, so to speak, with stories on survival and resilience to work towards mitigating violence against girls and women everywhere. Here at UNICEF's Office of Research Innocenti, we have a team of researchers who focus on social and economic policy, including child poverty, social protection, and economic empowerment. Our research on poverty has been innovative in showing how to effectively end violence for girls and women. Hear us now as we break down some of the latest findings from our gender-based violence research in this week's podcast for the 16 Days of Activism for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So let's talk about this year's theme, Hear Me Too. Would you say our research confirms that we don't hear or get a full picture of how pervasive violence against women and girls is? Absolutely. As researchers working behind the scenes, it's really fantastic to see such a powerful theme and associated Me Too movement bringing gender-based violence into the spotlight. Experts around the world agree that different forms of gender-based violence are underreported, and that's for good reasons. When people report, survivors face stigma, shame, re-victimization, and when they disclose or tell family or friends or even more formal sources such as medical staff or police, um, this may occur. So while each individual should have full control over when and how they choose to disclose, getting an accurate picture of the prevalence and dynamics around who, when, and where violence occurs is essential for pre- for prevention efforts. And this is really where research comes in. So for example, we conducted an analysis that was published in 2013 in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And in this study, we systematically looked across standardized nationally representative surveys from 24 countries and examined data from almost 94,000 women between the ages of 15 and 49 years who had indicated that they had experienced physical or sexual violence from a partner. And what we found is that among the sample where everyone had experienced violence, only 7% or one in 14 women reported to a formal source. And again, that's police, medical personnel, legal or social services. And this was particularly low in India and East Asia at about 2%. And reporting was higher in Latin America and the Caribbean, where among those who had experienced violence, 14% reported. And when we looked at informal reporting, so for example, telling a friend or a family member, the proportion was higher. So women are more likely to disclose to people they know than to formally report. And informally, about one in three women globally reported. However, this is still quite low. So if we're looking at data that is collected from the public sphere 
for example, from medical or police or legal records, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Currently, we have new work underway um, which replicates the study, but among adolescents between the ages of 13 and 17 years. And what we find here is perhaps unsurprising that reporting is even lower among adolescents. When we look across all forms of physical or sexual violence experienced by adolescents, reporting ranges from less than 1% in Cambodia to 25% in Tanzania. And the main reasons adolescents give for not disclosing or seeking help are self-blame, fear of re repercussions and perceived helplessness. And so they may be asking themselves, why seek help if nothing will change? And as you can imagine, understanding what factors facilitate help seeking and disclosure and receiving services, these all have direct implications for prevention efforts. So we think it's a very useful basic groundwork of research that can um, help provide more evidence and context to the field. Thank you. So Amber, you've been researching intimate partner violence for a few years now, and specifically you look at the impact of social protection programs on intimate partner violence. For those of you who don't know, social protection is defined as a set of policies and programs that aim to reduce poverty and vulnerability. One social protection tool is cash transfer programs that aim to provide cash to households, usually on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, so that these households can meet their basic needs. Can you tell us a bit about how research is linking cash transfers and intimate partner violence, and what are the main findings? Sure. So I've been working on evaluations of social protection for about 10 years now. Um, and while this was the main focus of my research, I was always very interested in gender-based violence. But the first time I was really able to bring the two together was back in 2010 when I was working at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. So the World Food Program had commissioned us to do a five-country study where we were comparing modalities of food assistance, so comparing food transfers to cash and food vouchers. I was working on three studies in Ecuador, Uganda, and Yemen, and I saw an opportunity to try and integrate some of these gender components into the questionnaire and had proposed to collect intimate partner violence. Um, in the end, I was only successful in Ecuador, sort of only by luck. So the head of the World Food Program office, she was very pro-women's empowerment, and she had recently come back from the field site for the transfer program and had seen abusive behavior um, among the beneficiary populations. So she was very supportive of including these kinds of dynamics, even though it meant additional layers to the questionnaire, including ethical protocol for safety and collecting um, these measures. So when we did the study, um, surprisingly to everyone, we found large reductions in IPV. Uh, we found 30% decreases just over six months of transfers for physical and sexual violence, and 19% decreases in controlling behaviors. So that study was published in the American Economic Journal in Applied Economics with Melissa Hidrobo and Lori Heisey. And that kind of sparked a number of different subsequent studies, including a qualitative study to follow up on the Ecuador sample to understand what was really going on and why we saw these impacts. The findings from the qualitative study, they were quite intuitive. So both men and women said that the transfers helped decrease poverty, helped bring the household together. They created more cohesive families, improved emotional well-being. And so they also reported that 
the transfers just reduce triggers for conflicts around scarce resources in the household. So, for example, if women had previously asked, had to ask men for money each day to go and buy food to cook for the family, this was a time where arguments could uh, lead to conflict, especially if the man didn't have any money to give uh, for, for food because maybe he'd um, used it for some other purpose. So, Women said that having extra cash um, to spend how they wanted and address their needs um, led them to feel more autonomous and increased kind of their self-efficacy in the household. So this qualitative study was then published jointly with Melissa Lori and Anna Maria Bueller at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, in BMC Public Health. And since then, at Innocenti and with the Transfer Project, we've undertaken a few additional studies. Um, but maybe let me just touch on our latest piece of work, which was just published a few months ago in the World Bank Research Observer. And what we did was we saw more and more evidence coming out on these linkages. And so we did a review kind of of all the quantitative and qualitative studies on this topic in low and middle income countries. And the review was again joint with IFPRI and the London School. And what we found was really in line with the Ecuador paper. So across 22 studies overall, 14 quantitative and 18 qualitative studies, the majority, so three out of four studies, found reductions in IPV. And the impacts were stronger for physical and sexual IPV as compared to emotional IPV or psychological abuse. So we also took all this evidence and built a program theory, so laying out the different mechanisms through which cash transfers could work to affect IPV. And we hope that in the future, this program theory can be used in evaluations to kind of guide how to measure these concepts along the, the causal chain from cash entering a household to reducing violence. And I think, it's also important to note that we only found two studies, one quantitative and one qualitative, which found adverse impacts. So this is something we often hear voiced in relation to giving women cash transfers, um, that there's a potential for increased abuse. But in fact, we didn't really find very much support for that. And in fact, the only study which found an increase in emotional violence also found a decrease in physical violence in the same population. Uh, so we think that these favorable impacts, they're quite no noteworthy. Um, as you know, social safety net programs cover a large portion of the population, over 1.9 billion people in low and middle income countries. So there's just a lot of potential to affect large populations of women. Um, in addition, it's noteworthy that none of these programs actually had dedicated GBV components. They were also all mostly focused on poverty and human capital development. So again, just a lot of potential for these types of programs. It's great that programs that aren't traditionally looking at gender-based violence components, as you say, could, could um, see how cash transfers can also have these additional impacts. Tia, can you tell us a little bit more about the work the Transfer Project is doing and how your team's work in Ghana and Tanzania fits into expanding what we know about impacts on gender-based violence? 
Specifically, I know you look at how cash transfers in combination with education training is helping adolescents prepare for adulthood. Can you tell us how this research is linking gender norms and gender-based violence, and how you think this research is impacting gender-based violence? Yes, so the Transfer Project is a collaboration of researchers from UNICEF, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and researchers at the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, who all work very closely with practitioners and policymakers at the national level to both generate rigorous evidence on the effects of government cash transfer programs on well-being of families, as well as then to facilitate uptake of this evidence. To date, we've conducted impact evaluations in 12 countries, and we have examined impacts on violence-related outcomes in an increasing number of countries. Two of these countries include Ghana and Tanzania. In Ghana, Together with the University of North Carolina, the Institute of Statistical, Social, and Economic Research at the University of Ghana, or ISSER, and the Navarongo Health Research Center, we examined a government cash transfer program being rolled out to pregnant women or women with a child under the age of one, and we tested whether the cash transfer reduced forms of intimate partner violence. And in fact, we saw that the cash reduced the frequency of emotional, physical, and a combined indicator of violence experienced by women in the overall sample. When we looked at women in monogamous and polygamous partnerships separately, we saw that the cash transfers even reduced the overall experience of emotional, physical, and a combined indicator of violence on whether they reported any violence in the previous 12 months among the monogamous sample. So indeed, both findings from the study appear to be driven by the monogamous sample. And this is really interesting, especially because the polygamous women report higher rates of violence in the sample, but the cash transfers didn't seem to reduce violence in that group. So we're going back next year to collect more qualitative data in Ghana to understand more about the pathways for these differential impacts. And then, as you mentioned, in Tanzania, our research around social protection and violence has been much more focused on adolescents. So in Tanzania, we're evaluating what's being referred to as a cash plus program. This pilot intervention is targeted to adolescents who are already living in households receiving government cash transfers, hence the cash, and these households are among the poorest 10% of households in Tanzania. They're very poor and marginalized, and this contributes to many risk factors for abuse and exploitation among adolescents, particularly girls. So the intervention provides adolescents with training and information related to both livelihood skills and strengthening, as well as knowledge and information about HIV treatment and prevention and sexual and reproductive health. The idea behind this approach is that in order to transition from adolescence to a safe and productive adulthood, adolescents need both livelihood skills and knowledge and access to services to help them stay healthy and delay pregnancy. So the cash and cash plus refers to the government cash transfer, and the plus is the additional training and linkages to services that the adolescents receive. And there are really two main ways we think this intervention might help mitigate vulnerability to sexual abuse and other forms of violence. First, the intervention provides 
direct training on gender-related topics and sexual violence with the aim of this giving adolescents improved capacity to negotiate for safer relationships. And second, this intervention has several elements aimed at economic strengthening, which in turn might reduce adolescents and girls in particular vulnerability to exploitative relationships. So where they might be pressured to engage in sexual relationships um, with older men or relationships where they're exchanging sex to help meet their basic needs and those needs of their family. And in a mixed evaluation of this intervention, where UNICEF Office of Research in Achenti is conducting this jointly with the Economic Development Initiatives in Tanzania, a research firm there, and we're measuring violence experienced by male and female adolescents, including emotional, physical, and sexual violence. So before the intervention even started, we collected data from over 2,400 adolescents and the households in the communities that they live in. We wanted to assess what their lives looked like before they received the intervention so that we could go back later and find out what changes were induced by the intervention. So before the intervention even started, we found that 36% of adolescents between the ages of 14 and 19 reported experiencing emotional abuse in the past 12 months and 26% reported physical violence. Further, among those adolescents who had already sexually debuted, 15% reported that the first time having sex was either forced, pressured, or tricked. And among that group of sexually debuted adolescents, 19% reported a form of sexual violence in the past 12 months. So that's almost one in five. Related to these violence outcomes and experiences of violence, we're also measuring gender equitable attitudes using a scale developed by researchers at Promundo called the GEM scale. And one dimension of the scale measures gender equitable attitudes related to violence. So we're studying whether the intervention not only changes attitudes towards violence, but also experience of violence. And these findings should be released in late 2019. Wow, thank you. There's so much coming out. Um, and of course, uh, UNICEF and Ocenti also just released in late October its own report on the multi-country study of violence against children, primarily focusing on four countries, Vietnam, Italy, Zimbabwe, and Peru. Um, and uh, with over 1 billion children estimated to be exposed to violence every year, this research is becoming more and more important to find out what's driving this and what can be done to help mitigate violence against children. Related to that, UNICEF and Uncenti and the Transfer Project has also published research looking at understanding the linkages between social safety nets and childhood violence looking at the evidence in low and middle income countries and identifying statistically significant protective effects of childhood violence, specifically as it relates to sexual violence against female adolescents in Africa. Could you expand a little bit on this to tell us what the significant findings of this review were and how it's helping to inform policies and programs for social safety nets? Sure, so we undertook this review on social safety nets and violence against children with Innocenti colleagues, Sarah Cook and Naomi Nehoft last year. 
And this was for the No Violence in Childhood Initiative. And the study was later published in Health Policy and Planning. So No Violence came to us and they wanted to understand how robust the evidence was linking social safety nets and violence against children. Um, and so that's what sparked this review. And we subsequently convened an expert roundtable to discuss the evidence and impact pathways. So the evidence here is not as strong as for intimate partner violence. So we ended up including only quantitative impact evaluations in the review and found only 14 studies. Um, overall, while overall only one out of five of the, the violence indicators showed protective impacts of social safety nets, the evidence was stronger for adolescent girls in Sub-Saharan Africa as you mentioned. So one example of this was a study undertaken by Audrey Pettifor and colleagues from UNC, which studied a conditional cash transfer on school attendance given to secondary school age girls and their guardians in South Africa. So that particular study found a reduction in intimate partner physical violence, so dating violence, of about 34%. And they hypothesized this finding was because girls were able to exit or avoid abusive relationships, which they may have previously relied on for financial needs. So despite a few promising examples, and particularly around adolescent girls, um, we think that there's just a lot more needed, uh, a lot more studies need to be done in this area to cover regional gaps, different types of, of violence, and different program typologies. So it's also, I think, quite interesting that between the studies measuring IPV and those in the Violence Against Children Review, there was no study that actually overlapped, so measured both at the same time. So there's a big gap in terms of understanding if there are more generalized impacts on intra-household violence at different levels, and if the intimate partner impacts we see have these knock-on effects in terms of child discipline, abuse, and so forth. So one of the areas we think this evidence will be really important is to inform the emergence of integrated social protection systems, which include linkages to service provision for child protection, so social welfare services and case management. And this is one area that UNICEF is increasingly exploring and where we think there's a lot of potential for reductions in violence against children among the most vulnerable members of families. Thanks. That's a great recommendation for both how these linkages can be improved, but also where further research is needed, which is always interesting. But let's talk about another major research output from you on economic strengthening and asset ownership. What do you think the next steps are in terms of evidence building for cash transfers in the context of intimate partner violence? Ultimately, all the research on social protection that we've been talking about feeds into our broader understanding of how poverty and violence are linked. Yet, there's many different ways that governments and other actors aim to alleviate poverty, not just with cash transfers, but to strengthen economic resilience of households and individuals. We believe it's important to understand specific impacts of these diverse types of programming, not only cash transfers, but also other economic strengthening initiatives or programs, for example, which might aim to increase women's asset ownership, because these different types of programs are likely to work through different behavioral pathways and perhaps have ultimately different outcomes. There have been a number of past studies which have tried to look at the relationship between women's asset ownership and IPV. However, most of these studies have been in very small samples with 
looking at observational data, so they have limited ability to determine the causal link between asset ownership and risk of intimate partner violence. Last year, we carried out a study where we looked at systematically across 28 countries to assess the relationship between women's house and land ownership and the risk of intimate partner violence. And we used an estimation strategy called matching. We did this study jointly with Audrey Pereira at IFPRE, Catherine Yount at Emory University, and Jennifer Black at the University of South Florida. And we published this study in the American Journal of Public Health. We did not find very strong evidence that there was a protective impact of women's assets. And more importantly, this relationship varied a lot by context. So we need to, we, we concluded from this study that we need to really move beyond uh, looking at these correlations between the two indicators and really start to look at program evaluation in this area try to rigorously evaluate programs which seek to increase women's asset ownership instead of just making conclusions from the observational studies. And this is an area that we hope can be advanced in the future. Thank you. Looking ahead, I'd like to ask you both, what are some new studies that are coming out that are doing groundbreaking work in this area? And what's next for research on intimate partner violence and how can social protection help? We're really excited about continuing the work on cash transfers and intimate partner violence. So following up on these promising results from our review, um, there's a lot still more to learn and potential is huge. So we recently formed a collaborative group of about eight researchers from both economic and violence backgrounds, including TNI, but also others at IFPRI, UNC, London School, and John Hopkins University. We have identified some priority research gaps, which we'll be pursuing over the next years. And so these include studies in Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Mozambique, and Ghana, trying to unpack some of the pathways and program design typologies um, for linking cash to IPV, and also trying to focus on longer-term studies. As Tia mentioned, the adolescent angle is super interesting. So we know abuse typically starts in the first few years of partnership. So we wonder, could social protection play a role in primary prevention from the start of the transition to adulthood? And that would be quite fascinating to study. Um, this is where we are very fortunate to be working with UNICEF social policy teams who are kind of on the forefront of programming on gender and adolescent sensitive social protection. So really an opportunity here to engage with our colleagues. I also think a really interesting area is around women's labor force participation or adolescent girls transition into the workforce and linkages to IPB. So I'd really like to see more studies comparing different types of economic strengthening on violence within the household more broadly. And finally, I'd say we're interested in continuing work on measurement of violence, in particular using the, some types of experimental methods to help increase disclosure and reporting. And I think a lot of this kind of interesting work happens when you get people together who have different approaches to research, so different backgrounds, to think through the solutions. Um, even though we tend to want to work with people who are like us, uh, we really welcome more interdisciplinary uh, and innovative approaches to tackle these issues. We're really excited about some of the new work that's coming up with our really amazing collaborators from all around the world. 
and we're really excited to dig into it and collect more data and really try to understand how these economic strengthening programs can reduce violence against both women and children. I couldn't agree more and um, looking forward to seeing how research can help tackle these challenging issues and gender-based violence in the future. So um, thank you all for joining us and thank you to Amber and Tia for helping us unpack our research on gender-based violence in support of this year's 16 Days of Activism Against GBV. For more updates on our research on intimate partner violence linkages with cash transfers, social protection, and more related to gender-based violence, please follow us on Twitter at UNICEF in Uncenti and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash UNICEF in Uncenti. And look to our website, unicef-irc.org, for more research on social protection and gender-based violence. Thank you all for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you, Kathleen. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>